So, just can you like introduce yourself for the audience? Yeah, my name is Jess Ellis. I'm a PT. I've practiced probably. Oh God, it's getting to be getting up there. So I graduated in 2009 from the University of North Dakota. So not a not a well-known PT school, but um, I'm from that state, and I graduated in 09, started my career, moved down to Phoenix, um, bounced around different opportunities with PT, um, but kind of landed at Exos and was the director of PT at Exos for a period of time, and then um, transitioned to the Portland Trailblazers and was director of player health and performance for five seasons, and now I'm back in Phoenix. So it's been a good transition. I'm a father of two kids. I got two boys, Ari and Tenny. And uh, yeah, I've just been busy, busy being back in Arizona. So cool. So I, I think there's going to be tons of like coaches or ther therapists are. From a school that was not that famous and when to being able to ha have the chance to go to like Exos and then go into Trailblazers. Yeah, it was, it was an, an eclectic approach. Like everyone that says, how do you get the job? how do you get to this position? And it's like, you can get to that position 20 different ways, but really it comes down to work, um, networking, and whatever position you're in at this period of time, you got to kill it. And you just got to be better than better than the average. And then you that just creates momentum. Nice, nice, nice. Yeah. So I know you have a project uh, called Rehab Code, right? So why yeah. exactly do you start the Rehab Code at the first place? I was bored. No, no, I... Uh, Man, this was something I've always wanted to do. Um, I got, you know, as I climb the chain of different uh, professional endeavors, it, I've always liked to teach. I've always liked to mentor. And I just started to take away from that. So I decided, you know, I want to I want to give back. So Rehab Code, it was it started out as an IG platform where it was just education, kind of living in between uh, performance and PT. And then from there, we we were transitioning into a con ed company. So um, I'm teaching courses, live courses. It's an all comprehensive sports rehab education company. And it's really based on two things. One is reasoning. So making sure that you, as you're working with athletes, that you have the right decision framework to have them go along the continuum of return to play. And then secondly, it's built on community because I wanted to break the barriers between strength coaches, trainers, PTs. I've worked in this setting for so long where we collaborate as colleagues and the education is tailored. It, it does have a medical lens to it. I think that's because I'm, I'm a PT and I don't want to be something I'm not, but within this education, every practitioner can take some value from it. And it basically improves communication rationale at that later stage of rehab. Nice. So, uh, from the previous question, that leads to the next one. I'm gonna ask: Should like why should you think that coaches should learn more about like injury and rehab? I thought nowadays like coaches are 
already know enough about like joints, muscle, fascia, and like joint by joint approach and something like SFMA, that kind of stuff? Yeah. I mean, it's the coach's job to safely train these guys. And it's a, it's an interesting environment that they're in because they're, they're not trying to maintain status quo. They're trying to get athletes better. And when you're working with pro athletes, that's a small degree, but that degree is critical for them to get another contract. Now, if that's their job, they probably should have an understanding of what could go wrong or what are areas that I need to monitor to make sure that we're still pushing the athlete in a safe manner. Um, and also, like I said earlier, this world that we live in, in that last stage of return to performance, return to sport, I mean, they're just as much as involved as the PT. And I think that's something with rehab code that I'm trying to stress. This is not a PT thing. This is a, a complete comprehensive view of all practitioners' eyes and opinions. So that's why strength coaches should understand injury and injury prevention or injury mitigation. Okay, like, talk a little bit about, like, your experience with Exos and your experience with, like, the Portland Trailblazer. What are the main differences? There's a few. Uh, you know, one is private. So, one, they're paying you, the athletes, and on the other end, we're paying them. So, with that type of mindset, things are different. Um, I feel in both situations, you can get good relationship with the player. Like in the pro setting, you see them every day. You can connect with them. You meet their family. You know where they live. So there is, you know, at least this connection that you can build. But from the private sector, it's different because they're coming to see you. They're selecting you. Um, there's an added level of trust that they put on you and may tell you more things than let's say the pro side. So the relationships between the two, though you can get close to the athletes, it's it, to, in my eyes with that private sector, you just can connect with them a little bit more. Um, you know, I think in general, um, it just matters on the athlete. If, if you are a true professional, like a true pro and you want to find the edge and you want to enhance and, and kill at your job, you're going to approach the pro, set, the pro setting just the same as the private in regards to their training and regards to their, their um, treatments and et cetera. So it really is just more about how engaged is the athlete at what point in their, their time in the off season in season and in in season, are they working with their own team or the team's um, staff? So, uh, do you, like which do you like the most? Which one? Oh man, that's you know, it's there's so much good in both. Um, when I was with the NBA, I, I was second row. I got to watch great basketball every night. Um, I got to be involved with coaching and strategy and, you know, seeing success and winning that's, that can be addicting. That is a real cool feeling. Now you also sacrifice a lot for that addiction. You know, you don't see your family as much. 
um, when you are done or in your off season, you're not done. You always have your phone on you, especially in the role that I was in. Um, there was always things that were coming up, like things had to be decisions had to make, had to be made every day. Um, so, you know, in, in some capacity, there is, there's a component of decision fatigue just because there's so much that you have to decide on a, on a weekly basis. So that's not what you get on the private side. Um, yeah, you can be busy. There's no lie that you, that that's not an issue, but the, the amount of stress and the amount of pressure on your day-to-day decisions is not the same. Did you miss it? Do I miss it? Uh, I don't know. I do. Like I said, I do miss being involved in that competitiveness, but I'm also walking my kid to school now that's two blocks away from my house. And I don't say, I can't say that that's better than going to a game and watching a good game. So um, I, I'm i always open for situations. I'm never going to be like, no, I don't want to go back into pro, pro team setting. It just has to be the right fit. Yeah, good. So uh, working with like bas- pro basketball player and working with like pro f- American football player, what are yeah. the main injuries that – you you you're gonna deal with when you're in like NBA. Yeah, I mean, I think as as you as a coach, you you step back and you look at the sport demand, and you say, what what, what does this athlete have to do? So that's one thing. When you look at injuries for basketball, you say, what are the stressors that are applied to this this body? Well, ground reaction forces are involved in every type of sport, but in this case, in basketball. A lot of times it's more vertical base just because of the jumping, the landing, et cetera. That's going to change the way the body responds to stress. So in basketball, I look at it as it's a heavily vertical ground, uh, ground reaction forces. And it's also a sport of deceleration or controlled momentum. That's what makes basketball different than football is much more off the line acceleration, top speed. Um, how do we, you know, how do I create separation? Now, basketball, you're looking, if you're looking at deceleration load, you, you got to look at the knee. The quad itself is e- extremely critical. So the quad, the how it functions, how much it can produce for torque, how quick it can produce torque, those are things you look at. So patellofemoral joint, patellar tendon, some innate structures like cartilage, um, those are those are all important in basketball. Um, also, if you go down to the ankle, you look at it from yes, you can get ankle sprains. A lot of times, that's from a a deceleration, a hard stop, and that ligament system gets sprained. But also, you look at the the vertical ground reaction forces to the foot. You look at this is a a common hot spot for osseous injuries, so bone related injuries, stress fractures, etc. There's parts of the foot that have poor vascularization. So those are your high higher odds of an injury. So as a practitioner, you have to look at, yes, bone-related injuries to the foot, knee, of course, you're looking at the whole complex of the joint itself. And then you get your lumbar, lumbar pain here and there. You may get a hip pathology. It's interesting. I see more and more sportsman hernias or athletic pubalgia in basketball. 
which I hadn't seen earlier in my career. So I think even in that case, let's say like athletic pubalgia, if you look at it, it's very common in football. There's now more prevalence in basketball, but within this diagnosis, it's different when it comes to the causation. Basketball is much more vertical base. Um, the injury of itself with AP is more uh, stress reaction to the pubic ramus. And also you get what we call bone clefts. So little bone spurs that kind of grow off of the attachment point of the, the, the abs and the groin. And then in football, you see of it more just based on the plane surface, which is a little softer. It's not that, that hard court. You're looking more like a soft tissue injury, more traction base where it's pulling off that pubic symphysis. So same diagnosis, two different mechanisms of injury. Um, now, if we look at football, we look at acceleration. So if I look at acceleration, I think of calf function, specifically Achilles because there's so much impulse and, and force that needs to be used to that complex. So Achilles tears, calf strains are common in football. Then you look at the next phase. So maximum velocity or top speed, that's all hamstring. Um, so hamstring strains, which we all know, growing strains based on the multi-directional demands of the sport. Um, and then just, it's a collision sport. So you can throw in all the traumatic injuries that you see concussions, broken bones, ACLs due to a contact injury, um, you know, shoulder injuries that maybe an AC joint. Uh, so that's more common in, in football, but in general, a little bit more soft tissue related injuries in football, basketball, a little bit more tenderness or bone structures because of the, the difference in um, how, how you control ground reaction forces between the two sports. So, uh, is the rehab process going to be different due to the sport demand? Uh, yes, for sure. Um, whatever their specific demands to that sport, you just basically have to tailor it down to a point where they can function. And then from that, you move on and you, you progress as needed. Now, the problem with basketball that makes a lot of smart people look dumb is stress fractures because we don't fully understand how the bone responds to load. It needs load. It just, it's a fine line of too much. And there's so much biology involved in it. And what are they eating? And is the body able to absorb the calcium like it needs to? Um, you know, there, there's things called forteo where it's like a, it puts it a whole bunch of osteoblasts in the system. But then the question is, is that good? Because the body also needs to have the remodeling component to it. So we can't just put a bunch of proliferation of the bone. It may look really nice, but it may not be able to take on force because it hasn't gone through the whole remodeling phase. So in general, dealing with any kind of bone related or stress fracture in basketball is tough. So, Hmm. How about how about like stuff like tendons? Like you mentioned, like uh tendons in like uh the ankle area. Yeah. Tendons itself is it's tough because when you look at it, you need time. You truly need time. And when you're in 
your mid-season in a sport, you can't look at a player and be like, all right, man, you just need to rest and not not challenge this, this tendon so much. So in doing so, if you have a pretty reactive tendinopathy, if it's very painful, of course, you're going to have to, you can't play them. But then there's this kind of middle ground where they could play. And that's basically where you start to mitigate the amount of workload that this athlete is doing. And then you're also supplementing with the interventions that need it to become more robust and maybe not more robust, but less sensitized because we, you know, it takes a lot more time for it to remodel the way we want it to, but that's, you know, I think in that case, it just comes down to a lot of upfront communication to give like realistic timelines of what's going to happen. And then, you know, you just monitor how they're responding. The biggest thing about tens is how do they respond in the morning? Does it feel stiff? Does it have pain? That's kind of when you're tell telltale signs of how is it responding to load? So that's kind of what you do. You can do some pain pressure threshold where you're pushing on the tendon to see how sensitive it is. Um, and then it's just kind of an in, intuitive process. Now, the fact that the Achilles is sore is not a bad thing. That means it's still remodeling. It's still responding to load. The times where the, the Achilles is calm and there's not an issue, that's actually a time where there's likely more chances of it tearing because the body and the human is called stress shielding. So you find ways to avoid the area or the lesion that's painful. So it'll, it'll use the tendon complex in a way that it doesn't address that area. Now, if it's fine and it doesn't hurt, but it's at a, such a low threshold of function because it hasn't loaded that area very well. When you put them on the court and you ask them to do a high demand or a high force demand, and they have to use that area of the tendon, it's not been prepared. It hasn't been loaded properly because it's just been deconditioned so much. And that's where you start to have a tear or a rupture is because the body or the person, the, the athlete himself was not loading the area that needed to be loaded. So besides like, uh, like those movement, they post on Instagram, like hill elevated, like split squat, hill elevated, some sort of like ISO. Is there any other way to like help the, like, the tendon feel better especially like Achilles tendon or like get stronger faster um you know it's everything comes in phases so early on you you, you can introduce isometric and that in theory will start to desensitize the tissue so as you do more reps it will likely be able to respond and be able to push more force it may not it may still be painful, but the pain might not limit the, the complex to be able, it'll be able to push more. So early on, you do isometrics. What you need to get to is heavy, uh, heavy slow eccentrics. And that's some of the variations that you, that you mentioned. It's just time under tension though. It's basically, they got to control the load through a full range of motion at a tempo that you deem is appropriate. So it's nice, slow it's able to kind of take on that eccentric demand that you see in sport. And then from there, that's when you start to do your 
plyometric variations, you're testing and challenging the elastic storage of that tendon complex. Um, so that's a sign. Now there's, um, Seth O'Neill, I think he's a, he had mentioned, which I thought was pretty cool is when you're having them do eccentrics with a calf raise. And if you can see the fasciculations in the calf, like a little bit of like of a tremor as they go down into that negative, it's a sign that they still need eccentric work because what you're seeing is the responsiveness of the type two muscle fibers. And they're trying to do their job, but they're not strong enough. So they, he had mentioned clinically, if you see these fasciculations, you know, you can maybe introduce some plyometrics, but don't go heavy on that because you're going to be introducing some higher elastic energy demands when the complex or the muscle still is not where it needs to be. So I thought that was one nice clinical nuance I'd never heard of. Um, so that's well, kind of in between eccentrics and plyos is this kind of clinical sign. Cool. So uh, earlier you mentioned that if the body feel like sore, especially like Achilles tennis, if the body feels sore or, or a little bit pain, it's a good sign. But what is bad is about is is when you don't feel pain, you don't feel sore. Am yeah, I, it's, I... it's, it's, a it's, it's a complicated, uh, question and answer. Just know that if you do have soreness in your Achilles, your body is still using that tendon like it needs to. So it's challenging. It's, it's irritated. It's angry as hell. It's not happy, but at least you're, it's showing that you're using that tendon. What I'm saying is with chronic tendinopathies where you've dealt with it so long and it's just been kind of at a suboptimal level, yeah, you don't have pain, but you've only really worked at a, of, of an envelope of let's say 80% and they're still able to play their sport at that 80%. But then that one loose ball where they have to do a false step and then explode to get that ball well, their body didn't say, Hey, I gotta, I gotta maintain at this. Well, they just went a hundred and that hundred percent demand when they were just instinctively trying to react to the ball, that's where it happens. I'm just saying, if you have soreness, it's just confirming to you and the clinician that you're using that tendon still, and nice. you're using it, you're using it at a, at a, at a level that it's not able to respond right now, but at least you're, you're challenging it. Nice, nice, nice. So, uh, so that's for like basketball. But how about like you mentioned when it's in football, it's more about like the soft tissue. Am I right? Am I remember? In general, this? yeah. Uh, I mean, the the playing surface is one thing, the playing style. But there's more time under tension in football, so there's just more muscular demand. Um, basketball is much more of this very quick movement using elastic energy from your tendons. When you see them squat, it's a very partial squat. They don't have to go into their hips very much because they use their tendons. They use their calf. So yeah, the demands is, is just a little bit more muscular based with football. That's why the bodies have a so different basketball is more, more like leaner and 
leaner and like longer body type and football is more, more muscular. Yes. Yep. It's a, uh, it's Darwinism at its best. You, you see the separation of athletes based on their skeletal system and how they move and you go, okay, that's, that's just natural selection when it comes to sport. I sure as hell not not going to make any basketball team anytime soon. <laughs> uh, I, I know that correct me, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, I know that exos have been using like first play, like just in like three or four years. And when, so when you're in exos, you don't really have the access to force play like every day. And it's totally different when you're in the pro setting. So is that a thing that you need to like, uh, you need to prepare yourself when you transfer from Exos to, to the NBA? You're talking about your knowledge base? Mm, or like familiar about the device, that kind of stuff? Yeah, yeah. Um. So when I was at Exos, we didn't use force plates. They've clearly transitioned to technology. And, you know, in the last five, six years, everyone's transitioned into more tech. Um, but yeah, if you're going into pro sports, you're walking into a situation where high performance teams have a pretty, pretty nice checkbook that can buy any piece of equipment that they really want uh, because they're validating to the organization that they're trying to make sure these guys are healthy. So just because you have the ability to buy equipment and buy tech doesn't mean that that's going to do anything. You got to have staff that know how to do it. And the biggest issue that I find with some of this integration of tech is we have a lot of smart people that don't know how to speak this language of sports science and data. And how do we dub it down to, an athlete, a coach, a front office individual that that doesn't have that knowledge base that we so much have, how do we bring it down to a level that is conceptually makes sense? And I think that is going to be the transition or at least the focus moving forward is how do we get everybody on board and committed to the tech? Because I know for a fact that if players if you're putting stuff on them, if you're asking them to go on a force play and you've not properly educated them throughout the process of why you're doing it, they're just going to not give you full effort. They're going to complain. They're You're going to piss them off. That's another thing. Um, and it's just not going to be good for a relationship and advancement of your health and performance staff when you're not properly looking at the tested, which is the athlete, and giving them the right information for them to feel comfortable. Uh-huh. And then one, la- one last part, when you have the tech and when you do track it, if you give that data to the coaching staff and the coaching staff doesn't do anything to it and they just have a hard practice, the players are going to be really mad, not just at the coaches, but at you because you said, hey, you said this tech was going to help me and it was going to inform people and the coaches aren't doing anything about it. And then you start to really lose the whole, the you, you start losing the ship at that point. Have you real, Have you ever gone through that kind of situation? <laughs> Does it sound like I've come off some experience? Yes. Yes. 
For anybody to have success in technology, it has to be bought in from the front office, coaching, players, and the health and performance team. And a lot of times there's one component of that group that is making the whole initiative challenging. So how, since, like you mentioned, you've gone through that kind of situation, how, how to like deal with that? You go in your office and you cry in the corner and then you go, <laughs> no, what you do is um, you're up front. You got to, you, you have to be up front with why you're doing things. You also have to be, I, I think you need to be kind of a minimalist. If you want six pieces of equipment, a real win might be you do two or three, and we're going to focus on these two or three really, really good. And then from there, maybe we evolve, but I don't want to use all of this stuff on guys because they have, they have some limited tolerance to these things. So being really good at the, the few initiatives that you want to roll out, let's say we want to track practice load and have that mirror game load. So we're going to get some connects on our catapult device and we're going to be really good at tracking practice to then how do we, how do we use that to inform the player and the coaching staff? Um, I also would say, so one is keeping it, keeping it small with your initiatives with tech. Then I would say at the start of the year and maybe a few times throughout the season, the GM, the coach, the director of health and performance meet with the team and say, this is what we're doing from health and performance. And everyone here standing is aligned with it. And we're going to use this as a tool to be better as a team. So players see that they see all three stakeholders saying that we're committed to this. And then if that's introduced early on and maybe a couple of times throughout the season, I think players will buy in more, but it all comes down to it is when you have the data, is it actually being used and do players feel like they're being heard? Seems like, because I'm based in Taiwan right now, but it seems like uh, at the beginning of like, like coaches or like therapists are able, have access to like these kind of technology. They don't really know how to like, like you mentioned, they don't, they don't really know how to use these kind of data to like, to cooperate with each other or to like, to communicate. Am I right? Yes. So you, uh, are you the person to help build up this process? Of course, you're, I mean, the, the person in charge of the health and performance needs to be the translator to all of this very technical language. Why would I expect a coach to understand RSI and concentric impulse and, you know, torque production of the quad with an isokinetic test? Like, it's like, I got to look at this, analyze the data. And then just like a, a research study, there's going to be a discussion or summary section of the article. That's what you have to do. You are from, from the intro to the results is all what the director needs to do. And then they take all that information that we're tracking on athletes. Okay. How do I explain this in layman's terms to the, the stakeholders that want to know? Yeah. 
cool. So back to the experience, back to the story, story you told us, you kind of like, back to the story, kind of like, uh, not really broken, but started a bad relationship with your athlete. How did you fix that relationship with an athlete? Uh, if, if you started bad, you look him in the face. I have fucked up. Let's start over. That's uh, admitting, admitting that you were wrong or admitting that um, you kind of started on a bad foot is, is super critical for athletes to see that. Um, you know, we, we all are from different parts of the world. We have different cultures and everyone looks at people differently. So the one big thing that you need to do in all different cultures is be consistent. Be consistent and just show that you are candid. So there's a book called Radical Candor that I really like, but being candid is not a bad thing. It's being truthful and upfront with what your thoughts are, but it's based on a level of empathy because you actually care about the person that you feel like it's kind of like tough love where you're explaining things that maybe are tough to talk about, but it's in, it's from a, a point of like, I care about you. I want to make sure that this is the right thing. So if you come off of it with a, an honesty of candidness, and if you admit your admit to the player that you were wrong, or maybe we were both wrong and let's like go from there. Um, that will gain a lot of ground. What you don't want to do is just not talk about it. Cool. Don't be sh don't be shy. Don't act like nothing happened, because what happens is they that you know the athlete will remember that. And the power of the locker room. If you've never been in pro sports, you don't understand it. But the power of the locker room is huge, and that is a player is sitting next to another guy in the locker room, and he says something like. I don't trust that dude. Like this is what he did. Well, then that other player listens to it. And now he has some hesitation with the staff and that can really break down a lot of the trust that's required to do our job. So you really have to manage the voice of the locker room in a, in a proper, proper way. Nice. Nice. I love this. Yeah. So uh, as a, as a performance coach, uh, when training like basketball player, we the test we gonna use is probably like kind of moving, jump, squat, jump, all different sorts of jump, and looking at reactive strength index, looking at takeoff velocity, uh, time to like time to peak power or mean power, that kind of metrics. But as a as a therapist, as a therapist. Um, what tests would you do when you're in pro, pro, pro setting and like what kind of metrics you're going to look at? Do you want me to talk about basketball? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I think from a, from a rehab stance or a, yeah, a rehab practitioner, you probably have to do a thorough, um, range of motion assessment, joint by joint, or at least the joints that are highly demand in the sport. You need to see the quality of the movement, see how much they have. Um, I also 
it's so critical because we all know that the chances of an injury is highly related to the previous history of an injury. So as a rehab practitioner, you have to know their history from cover to cover and know exactly and have it all written down and have it all kind of like drawn out, like this many strains here, this, and you kind of look for relationships of maybe why. Um, a lot of times in pro sports, you have a bunch of MRIs. So within my staff, we sifted through all the MRIs to see the details that we needed to bro both from a current stance, but on a future or prognostic level as well. So that's from just kind of that rehab room. Now, if you pull it off into the, let's go to the gym basketball, you know, you can simplify, um, movement patterns. So you can look at their squat pattern. You can go double leg and single leg, but what you find is. They don't like to, they don't go very deep in their squat because they don't really need to. A lot of their sport is pretty shallow squat, squat range because they just need to be reactive to get back up to get a rebound or do whatever. Um, hinge is something that if they don't have a high lifting age, so if they've not been in the weight room in their career, they've not been consistent with that. A lot of these guys don't know how to hinge. That's one basic pattern that I see that they don't know how to hinge. And if you don't know how to hinge, you don't really know how to load your posterior chain. Um, so that's something that we work on. And then the, uh, I like to look at the lateral lunge because the lateral lunge, I like the lateral lunge because it's a combination of hip, hip flexion and internal rotation to the side that you shift to. And that will help to see the, uh, the capacity of the hip when it comes to range of motion. So, when we get somebody on a table, we do a fader test, which is a combined flexion, adduction, and internal. And that really closes down the hip. And it's a common test to look for, let's be very vague, intra-articular pathology of the hip. Well, I can carry that over to a lateral lunge to at least get the component of flexion and internal rotation. And you look at their trunk angle, you look to see if they how deep they can go through their hip. And then lastly, if they externally rotate their hip to get more range. So that's an easy one that I like to do. Um, I like to do a wall, wall squat that I learned from Eric Mera, which is their back is on the wall. Their foot is basically up against the wall as well. And there's a heavy amount of translation of the knee past the toes. And that's going to tell you how strong their quad is. So that's a movement pattern that I like. And then I'll profile different things like tendon health. I'll look at, we had ultrasounds. So we took pictures of their tendons and areas where they could rupture it. Um, and then I related that to the rate of force development with isometric testing. And I checked their Scandinavian rebound test to see their um, fast RSI. Their slow RSI would be just counter movement jump that you can get easily from that. Um so yeah, I would look at tendon health there. We do a, a plantar flexion test. So seated into a strap and you get max, you look at peak force and rate of force development to look at that Achilles complex. Um, also with the calf musculature, a lot of these guys, if you haven't trained NBA guys or basketball guys, if you were to tell them to do a single leg calf raise, let's say three sets of 10, that's not a lot of demand if you would think it's from a pro athlete. What you find though, is they spring up into their, their calf raise and they have not great control on the eccentric. So it just shows to you that the sports sports specific specificity of the, of the athlete is 
there's not a lot of time on, time under tension to this complex. It's very much more elastic energy. So if you were to have them do slow cadence, like a slow tempo of eccentric calf raise with repeated bouts, I want to see how well they look, but then you may have them come in the next day and say, my calf's really freaking sore, dude. What'd you do? And I said, well, we just did 30 reps of a single leg calf raise. That's not that much, but that's just a nuance of training NBA athletes is they don't, they don't like to have time or time under tension on that calf as much as you would think. Nice. Nice. Love this. So that's about like basketball. So when you're in, like exos what are the tests you you would do on like the nfl players i i haven't been in exos for a bit so i know they have their custom screen that they that they kind of created um i am someone i don't do the fms i don't do the sfma um i i wouldn't I would do the FMS if I had 300 athletes from many different sports and I had a certain amount of time frame to get it done. That is a reasons is I can do it. It's easy to communicate to other practitioners because it's well known and it's just all different sports. Now, if I had an NFL group that came in every year then I know that this is a type of athlete that I'm going to be seeing for two months before a combine. I'm going to create a custom screen for that type of player. And specifically, maybe even by position as well. Um, just because the question is, why are we screening? Like, like what's, what's the rationale of why we're doing it? And how effective is the screen? Is the FMS based on research? Is it any much better than just having someone do a general look at the body. Uh, I haven't heard great research related to FMS. Um, so I just feel like if you have any type of sub subtype of an athlete and you know, it's going to be a consistent thing that you see every year, you start to create your own stuff based on knowledge base, specific demands of the sport, reaching out to experts to get their thoughts as well. And then you can kind of create whatever would work better. And the thought process is going to be like, uh, like those stuff you mentioned on basketball, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just an odds game. I mean, it's like going to the blackjack table. Like what are my odds? What are my odds? This guy's going to get hurt. Okay. Well, well, what areas could go wrong? Okay. Those are your high probability areas. Well, let's screen those areas really well. Um, and, you know, the outlier diagnoses that happen, like we probably wouldn't have caught those in the first place. But if we can kind of focus on getting a nice profile of the tendon, the tendon health, the quad function, um, the ankle proprioception and balance, um, ankle dorsiflexion, um, and then uh, an, an analysis of peak force and rate of force to the complex of the calf. Like that's, you're going to get way more information doing that for a basketball player than an FMS. Nice. Nice. I love this. So, uh, last, last thing before I let you go. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, uh, for those who are interested in what we're talking about today, where can they find the rehab code? And where can they reach out to you 
if they have questions for today? I mean, yeah, it's probably best to get me from the rehab code. So it's rehab underscore code. Um, and I have a newsletter that I roll out every week, which is, it's been, it's got some really good reception so far. It's, there's a lot of people that are, that are joining, which is great, but I, I give a, it's a topic, but I give a rehab article and a performance article of the same topic. So both rehab practitioners and strength coaches can learn. That's the thing that we're trying to do with rehab code is kind of break the barriers of these different titles. And we all need to know and, and feel comfortable in our, our roles and be able to talk. So that's called uh, weekly decoding. So you can add that on the link tree um, from IG. And then also I have a career codex. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to get people jobs. I'm trying to advance people's careers and I just do, you know, a weekly email where it just gives up-to-date jobs in pro sports, college sector, exos type of jobs. So that kind of high level private sector as well. Um, so you can, yeah, you can track me on IG and then just follow up with that. There's going to be courses in the near future. There's going to be some mentorship groups as well. Um, so it'll be fun. Like it's just, it's new. I got a lot of people that are interested. So we're trying to create opportunity for other people as well. So I highlight rehab code mentors from different areas of the fields where I want to highlight them because I respect them. And uh, yeah, we're just going to move forward with this cool concept. Nice. Nice. Appreciate that, man. Yeah.